0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, Sinead O'Connor's funeral will be taking place this morning. Why was she so misunderstood during her life?
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
3: Sinead had been somebody that I had grown up with Uh, she'd always felt like a really big part of my life. I I had been introduced to her when I was very young by my father and he had played the Lion and the Cobra consistently as we drove around Belfast, often in the rain, and the Lion and the Cobra would be blaring on car stereo, so it became this very, like, visceral soundtrack to my early childhood.
1: Growing up in Ireland, filmmaker Catherine Ferguson was obsessed with Sinead O'Connor.
3: Then when I was in my early teens, um, in the early 90s, I felt like I discovered her for a second time with my friends, and her second album had come out. Is my three and yeah, we just like looked up to her as this like musical god, <laughs> and someone that we were so proud of, that she was somebody that was from our own island. We could like really see what she looked like, you know, could really appreciate her style. We uh, were really um, proud of how bold she was and how she used her platform to speak out. And of course, we adored the music.
1: She released 10 studio albums and sold millions of records worldwide. She won Grammy, Brit and Billboard Awards. Not that any of that really motivated her.
4: I was one of the, probably the only female troublemaker, do you know what I mean, at the time. Trying to get people to hear things that hadn't been heard or listen to things that hadn't been, you know, talked about.
1: On Wednesday, 26th of July, Sinead O'Connor's family confirmed news of her passing a year after her son took his own life. She was 56 years old. Her funeral will be held in Ireland today, and the public have been invited to pay their respects when the procession passes the Bray Seafront in County Wicklow, where she spent the last few years of her life. Since her death, Sinead has been hailed as the true embodiment of punk spirit, as Ireland's alternative moral compass, and a revolutionary. But during her life, she was often mocked in the press and her cultural significance and her musical influence was sidelined.
3: Sinead was a counterculture artist who, in many ways, belonged there but then got thrust into this superstar realm. And I think the problem with Sinead is that because she was so rock solid on who she was and what she was there to do which was to create art and she was never going to be
1: controllable from the guardian i'm nosheen iqbal today in focus the life and legacy of sinead o'connor catherine a lot of people only really knew sinead o'connor for her cover of prince's song Nothing Compares to You, which went to number one around the world in 1990. But of course, you know, her music career started a few years before then, and it's something you really go into in your documentary about her. So can you tell me how and where her incredible talent was first discovered and how it was then nurtured?
3: Well, it goes right back to when she was a teenager. She spent a year in like a reform school for girls uh, which was next to Magdalene Laundry in Dublin but while she was there she met an incredible woman, Jeanette Byrne who was a young music teacher who was brought in to work with, with the girls in this school and, and do music lessons and whilst there Sinead and Jeanette uh, got on very well and Jeanette really was encouraging her talent and and uh, for, for Sinead to sing and, and to write music, so much so that when Jeanette got married, whilst uh, Sinead was a pupil at this school, she asked her to sing at the wedding. At this wedding, Sinead met Paul Byrne, who was in a band called Into with It's a Dublin band, and they had heard Sinead sing, and they obviously could hear the talent, and asked her to uh, write a song for them, which they then recorded, which is called Take My Hand.
4: And
3: And Sinead had written this song based on this experience she had whilst at this school, where she was sent to the and Laundry a uh, building within the within the complex that the school was on, as a punishment, one night where she was sent up where a lot of these older uh, Magdalene women who'd been there for sixty odd years, and she wrote this beautiful song "Take My Hand" about this desperately sad experience of meeting these women who'd just pretty much been left um, on their own in this hospice. So you can see from the very get go, she was writing. Just the most potent from the heart music you can ever imagine. And this really sets her on this trajectory. Uh, a lot of the line on the Cobra, the first album was written while she was at school, entertained.
4: But anyway, now I started singing quite young and I felt I guess it was a way of uh, conducting a relationship with whatever you call it, that some people call God or the Holy Spirit or Jah or whatever you call it.
1: Well, it wasn't a secret that Sinead had a really difficult childhood, which is why she ended up in care. And she talked about how she suffered violent and sexual abuse living with her mother. What did you learn about that period in her life?
3: We've learnt as much as what she's written about in many articles, what she's written about in her book. Her mother was unwell and Sinead was living with the mother and it was a very, very sad situation that caused Sinead uh, a huge amount of pain and was something that she was never able to reconcile. This deep trauma and really the effect that that the church and and the control over women in particular has had on the country. It's something that we're, we've barely scratched the surface with. But here was somebody 30 years ago speaking out. It was unheard of for anybody to speak out against what had been going on um, in this public manner. And with such clarity and brutality in how she was able to articulate herself about what she believed to be wrong with the country.
1: Sinead's mother died in a car crash when Sinead was 18 years old. and... Not long after, she moved to the UK and began work on her first album. Catherine, how much did her life change when she arrived in the UK?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, It must have just felt like such a breath of fresh air landing into London in 1985. You know, Ireland was was just still incredibly under the power of the church and women were still being treated like second-class citizens. And I think arriving into London just must have just felt like such an incredible step change. The label that had encouraged her to come over put together this band for her, so she was given this incredible uh, year where she could rehearse and try out material and really develop the Lion and the Cobra. I think she just felt very safe and also had a real laugh. I think she needed to have a real laugh. And I think that's what this time provided her, just like an incredible chance to be creative and to be somewhat held by this, this group of musicians who really had her back and wanted her to succeed.
1: And even then, there were signs, weren't there, that Sinead wasn't going to be a conventional pop star. Can you tell me about how she started pushing back against what the label wanted from her and how she worked to define her own image?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think pretty early on, there definitely was a suggestion that she should grow her hair long and, you know, somewhat sexualise her image, uh, which she, of course, in true Sinead form, told them to go and jump. um, And that's really where we hear about the the head shaving. um, (laughs) From this very early stage in her career, we really get to see just how Incredibly headstrong and authentic and in many ways in control of the artist that she's going to be from from the very get-go. She uh, certainly doesn't uh, dress as they're hoping and she just doesn't cow down to any of the demands that are put on her by any of the parts that be within, within the, the label or the music
1: industry. I mean, the other element that, that some listeners might find shocking is Sinead got pregnant and the label insisted that she get an abortion and of course she didn't and the challenges that, I, that she faced coming from Ireland being a musician in England and she did it her own way like where do you think that strength of conviction and courage came from?
3: I think she always had it in her I mean we spoke to school friends who said she was exactly the same at school <laughs> I think she just was born with a real sense of, of what was right. It was, yeah, a horrendous ask, uh, really, from the label um, at that time. Our first performer is 21 years old, comes from Ireland, and with her very first album, The Lion and the Cobra, she has served notice that this is no ordinary talent. Ladies and gentlemen, please meet Sinead O'Connor. You know, her first major appearance in America, on the Grammys, which is astounding and so joyful to watch still to this day, that she actually appears on that stage with her sons, her, her new baby's baby girl tied to the back of her jeans um, <laughs>
1: as a point. So literally two fingers up to sexualize her body. two fingers wow. up
3: and a, and a beautiful little patch, hand-sewn patch with her baby's name Jake on her knee. Then the Public Enemy logo stenciled on her head. They had refused to allow a rap category to be part of the Grammys and she put the stencil on in solidarity with the artists that weren't (laughs) being recognised.
1: Well, that album, The Lion and the Cobra, it was hugely critically acclaimed and so I guess Sinead's career really was on the ascent. And then... You know, then came the release of Nothing Compares to You and that iconic music video. it
4: been seven hours and days since you took
5: your love away.
1: And everything changes. Catherine, how does she feel about becoming an instant international superstar?
3: I think um, in one part she was amused by it and excited that she was going to get to perform to much larger audiences. I think it happened very rapidly overnight after the uh, worldwide success of, of the song. But on one hand, also very frightened by it, suddenly being thrust into the public eye and suddenly being this iconic personality. And that's where things became dangerous or, or i think or the, that's where the rub really began to happen because they couldn't control it
4: first of all i want to point out that it's not just the grammys that I pulled out of the english awards as well the english equivalent uh, the reason that i wanted to pull out was because uh, i believe very much that the music industry as a whole um, operates mainly it's concerned mainly with material success and uh, a lot of artists uh, do i think Are responsible for encouraging the belief among people that uh, material success will make them happy Um, and I think one of the ways that the industry encourages commercial success and materiality is by having award ceremonies which very much uh, honor those who have achieved material success rather than people who have told the truth or who've done anything uh, to pass information to people or to inspire people or to you know just be uh, truthful about anything you know what I mean
3: Because at that moment of this super fame that she experienced, she's given this platform, she becomes more and more vocal um, over those couple of years. So that's where it all kind of kicks off. And... Builds. We see her refusing to play at the Grammys. We see her taking part in the huge um, abortion marches.
4: You're going to admit that a girl who's been raped should be allowed to leave the country for having an abortion? Then why not come right out and admit she should be allowed to have it here?
3: We see her writing um, political songs like "Black Boys and Mopeds" about uh, police brutality in Britain. It was building, really, from 1990. You know, she's starting to become more and more politicised over these years. She's also giving a lot of very honest, very candid interviews about Ireland and her upbringing and the abuse that she suffered as a child and the abuse that she feels Ireland has suffered under the hands of the church she's talking about it throughout these years it's 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 something that she is big, pretty
4: open about I'm not about yeah. blaming people or attacking no. people and I can see now that it's right. not all the church, but what I'm right. saying is this: you've got to be allowed to acknowledge what's really happening so that it can yeah. be grieved. That's and right. Yes, yes. That for me in my life, people do Sinead. say switch off and let go, but Sinead. no, because you must hear this. This yeah. is why you, as a priest, you must hear this. That why it affects me and why you can't just flick a switch is because, like Eddie was saying earlier on, it affects you in the now, all your relationships for the rest of your life, and that is, to me, against God. You know, God gave us life so that we can feel alive and good and love people and love each other. But if we haven't been shown that example by the Christ figures, be they parents or priests or whatever, we can't carry that on, you know what I mean? So. And so in
1: 1992, you know, there's that appearance on Saturday Night Live in America. And she does something that will completely change her career yet again
3: is invited on to Saturday Night Live. Oh, she, she's actually asked to perform two songs. She performs the first song without incidents, and then she has told the producers that she's going to perform this acapella version of a Bob Marley song, which is called War, which is based on a speech um, by Hailey Selassie that was given at the U.N.
4: Until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is
3: finally. She appears on stage to the studio audience uh, in in a white dress. She's surrounded by candles. She's wearing the Star of David on her, as a necklace. She's got the Ethiopian flag tied to the microphone. She performs this very powerful direct-to-camera performance of war.
4: Until the colour of a man's skin is of no more significance than the colour of his eyes, I've got to say war.
3: She has told the producers that she is going to hold up a picture of a refugee child at the end of this performance. Um, so they know that she's, she's got this piece of paper that she's going to um, lift up
4: on the show. Everywhere
3: However, she gets to the end of the performance and starts changing the lyrics of Bob Marley's war to um, her lyrics around child abuse. As she's coming to the end of performing this song, she brings out the picture and instead of a young refugee child, it's of the Pope. She rips it into pieces and says fight the real enemy.
4: In the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy
3: to an absolutely stunned America. <laughs> and she stands there and it's a tumbleweed. She walks over and she blows out the candles that are beside her and she walks off stage and you couldn't hear a pin drop. It's this astounding moment on live TV that has been broadcast out to the entire country on this prime prime time show. And yeah, it's still, I think, very shocking to see it, to see the conviction in her eyes and what she's trying to communicate down the lens. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen.
1: Well, at that time, the conversation about child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church had only really just begun in Ireland, although obviously it was still a taboo subject. In the US, this was a completely unacknowledged scandal, literally 10 years before the Boston Globe reported their findings on abuse. But as you say, Sinead believed in her message so strongly. She wanted to communicate it so much that it became irrelevant almost in that moment as to what would happen to her career, what would happen to her image, and how would she be treated?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And... um Claire Lewis, her then one of, one of her managers at the time, was there in the studio with her, and obviously, I uh, <laughs> don't you know, couldn't believe what she'd just witnessed, and spoke to Sinead afterwards, and Sinead had said she absolutely was delighted <laughs> with what she'd just done and had no regrets, and basically, it was a hundred percent the right thing. However, the backlash it then begins instantly against her is staggering. It's nationwide as the whole of America begin to lose their minds over this act on live TV.
5: But I'll tell you one thing, she was very lucky it wasn't my show. Cause if it was my show, I would've gave her such a smack. grabbed her by her her eyebrows (laughs) I would have uh, what am I doing I'm making myself
1: crazy and then what did happen to Sinead after that moment
3: I think she was very emotionally crushed by having this you know the world seemingly turn against her and was invited to play at a Bob Dylan Tribute Concert two weeks later in Madison Square Gardens where lots of protest artists were uh, also performing in this tribute to Bob Dylan and she uh, arrives there, you know, you got to remember that this is the person, that's her musical god, that she has grown up with in her childhood who he has meant everything to her, it's her icon and she's invited to play at this party for him.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Sinead O'Connor.
3: She arrives on stage, uh, 20,000 people, and half of them start booing, half are cheering and half are booing. And there's just this horrible, twisted sound uh, that that noise, that combination creates. She's meant to perform, I Believe In You, which she, she was going to sing in a whisper to this crowd, but because of this, overwhelming. And she actually I think mentioned it somewhere that it sounded almost like farm animals, just this overwhelming booing and cheering. She decides not to sing the song. She pulls the earphones out of her ears and she tells her band, no, we're not going to sing that. And she sings war back at the crowd. She sings for the song she's performed on Saturday Night Live two weeks prior that's caused all of this backlash. She sings it back at the crowd. And it's unbelievable.
4: Okay, turn this up. Until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior.
3: You know, here is this young woman, 25-year-old, who has been very open about you know, the abuse she suffered in her life, at home, as a child. And then here she is, you know, singing and speaking out about this abuse to this crowd, who are then, uh, you know, booing her and re-traumatising her in front of the world, re- you know, triggering and re-traumatising her. How, as a people, Like, who are we? (laughs) Like, who are we? When she'd been open and honest about where she'd come from and why she was singing about, and that's how they react to a person who's vulnerable. It's a disgrace.
1: Simon Hattonstone, you interviewed Sinead a couple of times for The Guardian, and the first time in 2010, when she was a mother of four children and was back living in Ireland. In the years since the peak of her success, she had dropped out of mainstream pop culture, but she was still making albums. What was going on in her life at the time?
6: She'd not been in the charts for ages, she'd continued making music but she'd become a priest. She'd become a priest a few years ago and people didn't believe that it was sincere. And so I think she was, a, in her own way, a devoted mum. She was a priest and she'd continued her campaign against the church. She looked totally different. Her face was much more rounded she was wearing a suit that she looked like an industrialist from the 1920s or something so that was another thing because there were so many changes in her life people never trusted what she was going through but I think she went through everything with no intention to you know provoke or to get back in the limelight I think it was just what happened to her
1: it was in 2010 that Pope Benedict sixteenth actually apologised for the scandal of child abuse within the Catholic Church. Is that why you wanted to meet her?
6: It was simply because she'd been proved right. And we just thought it was, we wanted to hear from her. We wanted to honour her, actually.
2: Ireland was the Catholic country hit hardest by the abuse scandal with some 13,000 known victims. The finger of blame has been pointed not only at the offending priests but at the church hierarchy who knew about them and protected the perpetrators at the expense of the victims all the way up to Benedict. In his letter, Benedict admitted that the cause of the problem was a tendency to, quote, a misplaced concern for the church and avoidance of scandal.
6: We wanted to go and say, you were right, you got it right, tell us about it.
1: So what was it like to interview her? What did she have to say?
6: She was brilliant on the relationship between mental health and normal life and music and creativity and herself. And she never got credit for that. And she was a pioneer in that sense. I think she was a pioneer politically without being political, the best kind of political pioneer. Like, she's not saying, I'm radical, I'm this, I'm that. Just doing it, going out and showing solidarity with, you know, with Palestinians, with people who were suffering, with all kinds of minorities. And the stuff she did about the church, her exposure of it, is, I mean, no one, I don't think, has done anything like that and will do anything like that
1: to the casual observer Sinead O'Connor going from ripping up a picture of the Pope live on TV and then being vilified just absolutely monstered for it to then becoming ordained as a priest you know it's, it's quite the journey but was that consistent for her do you think and can you explain her relationship with faith and religion and what she had to say about it?
6: She explained that I said was it your way of sticking two fingers up at the church to get ordained? And she seemed quite shocked by that idea. And she said, absolutely not. I've never lost my faith and I've never lost my belief in God. My anger has always been directed at people who've abused that religion, who've careerized it, used it to exploit people. And I think one thing she didn't like about the Catholic Church was that so much money and so much glitz And so much hierarchy came between it.
1: Well, then in 2018, she converted to Islam and she changed her name to Shahada Sadaqat. But, you know, she kept Sinead as her professional stage name and she really embraced the religion. She was also cruelly mocked for it. But I wonder if what she had to say about why she chose Islam and what she found within the faith.
6: Again, I thought there was a real sincerity in that. She'd experimented with loads of religions and she'd experimented seriously. She'd read loads. She'd experimented with Rastafarianism as well. I remember she said to me that she left all her readings on religion, she'd read through everything, and she left Islam and the Quran to the last. She said it was much more egalitarian. There weren't the relationship it encouraged was with God. You know, it wasn't with a thousand different priests of different, you know, levels of seniority. So she thought it was a simplicity in that.
4: When I read it and listened to it, again, as an Irish person, we love words. The intelligence of the scripture, the intelligence of the way Allah uses language, to me that shows it could only have been supernaturally written. There is no human being on earth could have put together the the language and composition of, of the Quran, you know.
1: What made her stand out? What made her so special when you were actually sat in front of her? I think it
6: was her honesty. And that she had to say what she felt. And I think the intimacy she wanted to talk about her life. And I think what made her incredibly special was that she kind of broke your heart like no one else did. And I think part of the reason she broke your heart was because she was so funny with it. You know, lots of people who have terrible traumatised lives you come away with an awful heavy feeling and you, with her you could come away from all that kind of pissing yourself at the same time
1: Coming up The Cultural Impact of Sinead O'Connor Then what's it been like to see your film out in the world at this moment with so much mourning and so much renewed interest in Sinead's life?
3: Yeah, well, we released the film um in 2020 at Sundance, um, and instantly it was clear from the reaction to that fit, that screening, which direction this was going to take, how people were going to react. There was literally an avalanche of love, of this outpouring from anybody that saw us, for her and for her story, because it's just reminded everybody of how much they adored her, but also the complete injustice of what happened to her and how we let that happen to her. So it's caused this very profound effect, actually. So we launched it at Sundance. It went around the world doing festivals for six months, you know, it was like a bit of a Mexican wave almost, you could just see it hitting different countries and, and the reactions of, particularly actually like countries like Mexico or Poland, you know, countries that had, Italy, countries that had also been under the church's influence as well. And there was a moment where I was mess I was sent a photograph, a text from a friend who was in New York during that release in September and I nearly, I nearly dropped dead when I received this, but it was a poster, our poster, of her face, which is pretty much our poster is just her face, on a massive billboard in Times Square. And it was this beautiful photograph of her just staring out at the world from this huge billboard. And I thought, my God, surely the last time even her image was presented in Times Square was most likely when they were steamrolling over her records in October 1992 and then there she was as this monolithic site uh, this year and that it was moments like that that were profound because I just thought here she is the phoenix from the flames she she's where she's meant to be and she was very tickled by that happening as well which was lovely
1: Catherine, what do you think Sinead O'Connor's legacy will be?
3: What was fascinating when we were researching the film five years ago, we went back and met lots of writers and academics and we're really trying to test our thesis and make sure that it was correct and that we weren't veering off in the wrong directions with what we were trying to say. And what we happily find out is that even at that point, four years ago, she was for the first time being written into the history books, the academic texts, as a as a figure of a huge irish um cultural significance she wasn't being written about as a one hit pop star at all she was already being put in where she was meant to be at that stage so i think her legacy in that regard is that she's going to be considered as one of our amazing irish disruptors and icon that has created and inspired so many to also use their voices and speak out against what's wrong. At the end of our film, we show an Ireland that has changed drastically, drastically. It's unbelievable how much it's changed. And we show all of the young people today, particularly, you know, around uh, the equal marriage referendum and the repeal of the eighth referendum. What we're trying to say is, while she may not have directly changed the country, she has directly and um, influenced the young people that have changed the country, a hundred
0: percent. For many young women here, this was their victory after a campaign centered on equal rights.
3: It just means the world.
4: We're it's, like elated
0: today. We don't even what to say like, we're so <laughs> emotional. Like, oh my God, we're so shocked. It's a
3: historical event for
0: Ireland, huge, huge. Everybody feels it.
3: She was the guiding light and uh, she was a torch that brought us out of the dark ages, uh, particularly in Ireland. And for that, we were everything.
1: Catherine, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. You too. That was The Guardian Simon Hattonstone and filmmaker Catherine Ferguson. My thanks to both of them. Catherine's film Nothing Compares can be streamed online and the memoir that Sinead O'Connor wrote that we mentioned is called Rememberings. There are a number of really wonderful pieces about Sinead and in tribute to her that I'd really recommend spending some time with. You can find those at theguardian.com forward slash music forward slash hyphen O hyphen Connor. I'd especially look out for the interview with the Irish producer David Holmes, which is titled, Oh My God, This Is Like Recording Nina Simone, which reveals how he recorded her final yet to be released album. That's it for today. I'm Nosheen, and this episode was produced by Lucy Hoff. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo, and the executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. See you tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.